And thanks for joining me, everyone. Charles Moskowitz here, Monday through Friday, 12 to 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, as I continue to launch my live program via Zoom. Um, you may be viewing this, of course, on YouTube, Periscope, Twitch, DLive, and all the other subscribers. Thank you very much. You're welcome to send in chats, or you're welcome to, if you have a link to the Zoom, you can actually join the program, be heard, and even be seen if you want to be. Um, okay, and my guest is uh, Andrew Johnson. He's a PhD graduate student at the University of California in Santa Barbara, political science, critical theory. Andrew, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Andrew, we started to, uh, you came to my attention through academia.edu as the author of an article about fascism, but you've also written a, a good article, which I haven't read yet, but we could talk about it. It's obviously topical. And that is the call by many liberal Democrats to defund the police around the country. In fact, I understand that in Minneapolis, they actually have a city council majority to do just that. So I think we should go right to that and maybe work toward also an understanding of what is meant by fascism and how that idea might influence American politics. But um, for starters, what is the basic premise of your thinking or your article on the issue of defunding police? Um, well, I don't have an article about defunding the police. I uh, published an article, uh, 2014, um, entitled uh, Foucault, Critical Theory of the Police in a Neoliberal Age. And that article is a study of the French philosopher, Michel Foucault, um, and particularly tries to reread his uh, his work um, through the lens of policing instead of prisons. Um, in particular, I was very fascinated by his quote unquote secret history of the police from the 18th and 19th century, uh, where police were interested in setting price controls, monitoring the grain market, um, quarantines for the plague, um, and a whole host of other sort of public service functions. Um, and this was published, uh, or I was writing the, the final edits of this um, when Michael Brown was shot and, um, you know, was lying dead in Ferguson, uh, Missouri, and the, the Ferguson riots uh, started. And eventually this article was published when the grand jury came back with um, an acquittal for Officer Darren Wilson in uh, December of 2014. Um, and Currently, some of my, my dissertation book project um, sort of comes out of this article, um, but it also is a little critical of some of my early work. Um, I, I, I really feel, you know, as a, as a young scholar, you know, we're sort of pushed to publish and perish and all of these things. And ultimately, it means that, you know, we're, we're trying to get our ideas out there um, sometimes, uh, you know, before we've studied all all the necessary facts. And so um, I, I, I certainly changed my mind a lot since, um, since this early work. In particular, I have um, started to focus more on the black radical tradition and how the black radical tradition provides a different uh, set of theoretical tools or theoretical descriptions of American police that European thinkers such as Foucault and others, uh, don't really uh, provide. 
And um, one of those is now we're seeing the current calls for defunding um, the police uh, this very week. So I could state more about that, but um, that's just at least um, a, an update on some of my work so far. Well, I mean, the history of, of um, the police via V the African-American community is really, you know, an interesting and important study. Um, you know, obviously they were used particularly in the South and I, uh, particularly I think in, in Tennessee to, uh, to basically round up black men and put them in, in gangs, you know, chain gangs up until even the early part of the 20th century. And, you know, on, on basically flimsy charges, in some cases, no charges. And uh, the brutality against the black men particularly has been something that I think was was a major problem right up till maybe the early 1970s when it started to decrease due to better training. But yet it's still there, obviously. I mean, that's all these instances involve it an overreaction and overreach by police, whether they were like based whether it was based on racism, they don't like someone because they're black. I mean, that that I don't know, but the fact is that they they were pushing black men around and, and they were, you know, maybe they were concerned. And, and in, in all the cases we're talking about recently, these were these were not people who were armed and dangerous. They were, you know, involved in some minor infraction and the reaction was that they ended up being killed. So, you know, I totally get the fact that this is a problem. I guess that um, my question for you is, do you see this as a systemic problem? What is the nature of the problem? And uh, once we can talk about that, I, I wonder if you would go to reforms that you think could be brought about in police departments and, and even including possibly ultra, ultimately defunding police. Um, yeah, yeah, thank you for the question. It's, it's a broad question, so let me try to um, come at it in a couple different ways. Um, first of all, some of my research is historical. Um, and so I really um, am interested in the historical formation of police institutions in the United States. And um, as you say, the, um, the, 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 the particularity of the Southern states um, as the slave states and as the states of segregation plays an important role in that. Um, you know, some, I think there was a tweet most recently, you know, it's sort of kind of a weird moment to see all my research now turned into a tweet meme, but um, I think it was something like props to everyone in zip ties yelling at the police, go to jstore.com and read about how police were uh, early slave patrols. And so there is this um, history of, yes. of early forms of police as slave patrols, as slave catchers in the South. And that's really interesting for this current conversation about defunding the police because, um, you know, as uh, after the Civil War um, or even a little bit beforehand is when they started getting rid of slave catchers. Um, and, and after the Civil War too, there became this relationship in which former slave catchers, former police, uh, transitioned into sort of paramilitary organizations such as the KKK. And so I would refer to this as a sort of uh, volunteerism. And as we're sort of hearing calls for abolition or defunding, um, you know, I do think that we really need to take seriously this um, 
dynamic in which by in the devolution of state institutions, we see new dynamics come about, whether it be privatization, volunteerism, um, and that can be both sort of paramilitary right wing um, uh, units, but also sort of the self defense sort of units that we've seen by the Black Panthers. And then also uh, community, you know, these calls for sort of community, uh, community organizations of public safety. Um, and, you know, I think that those, we should hold those um, alternatives in suspicion. And I think the early history of America, um, or the United States rather, um, helps, us, helps us think through some of these relations. But I guess I do wanna also point out that this is not just an issue with the Southern states. Um, you know, the normal history of police institutions um, has been a story about how police were created in a mimicking of the European model in the 1850s, um, particularly in the urban cities, Boston, New York, um, Philadelphia. And we saw, at least in the 1960s, um, urban uprisings simultaneously as the civil rights movement that were in uh, northern or western cities, Los Angeles, Detroit, um, New Jersey. And right. so this isn't just um, an issue about the sort of um, kind of backward south. Um, this Not is at something... all. In fact, the in most recent instances have been in predominantly either northern cities or border cities or kind of liberal Democrat cities, yeah, you know, like, uh, cities. you know, like, like New York, like, like Baltimore, St. Louis, Minneapolis, um, you know, these are, you know, predominantly what we euphemistically call the so-called blue states that, that you have these instances. So I guess how, you know, first of all, what's going on with that? I mean, how is it that these, uh, are these, is it a systemic problem in police departments or is it bad cops i mean i think in the case of minneapolis at least from a from a kind of a superficial glance at it and we'll find out more it looked like a bad cop who had actually been already involved in something like 20 infractions and violent instances and had been involved with a killing someone and yet there he was still on the police department and um, and allowed to function so i guess it's is it a problem of bad cops is it a problem of cover-up? Is it a problem of governments basically turning a blind eye to these cops and allowing them to function like that? Um, it's an amazing question. I think that um, it really demands our attention. Um, so a lot of, you know, Minneapolis as a Democratic mayor, Democratic city council, Democratic governor. Um, and yeah, the, the police officer that killed George Floyd um, has a very long history of excessive force and um and he looks like he could be quote unquote a bad apple however um i think we need to also take take seriously this uh this thing that maybe there's a bad orchard um and um we know that amy klobuchar um a, a possible uh, vice president uh contender for Joe Biden, um, as well as a Democratic senator, uh, was one of the district attorneys that allowed, uh, that didn't prosecute uh, mm -hmm. George, um, th this officer. 
Um, and, um, you know, we also know that in that three police officers watched, watched this killing and didn't do anything to intervene. Right. Um, and one of the big arguments that we've been seeing recently is by um, a sort of foundation funded nonprofit industrial complex organization called Campaign Zero, um, headed by D. Ray McKessa. And um, they've been advocating for an eight can't wait campaign, um, which is really focused on use of force policies and saying that if we change these use of force policies, then we won't really see these police uh, killings anymore. And um, ultimately, Minneapolis was a model for police reform. Um, it, it's, so we can't just say that this was a case of a bad actor. Um, Minneapolis was one of the poster cities for Obama's 21st century uh, era of, of police reform. And so we really have to take into consideration um, these you know, these things, because, you know, the chokehold that killed Eric Garner was banned in New York City. Um, nevertheless, uh, the officer that killed Eric Gardner continued to serve uh, as an officer of the NYPD for five or six years until right. just recently. And was he was being paid $125,000 a year, when in New York City, the average salary is $60,000 um, average salary. And he continued to be making money, regardless of the fact that New York City had a ban on, on the chokehold that killed Eric Gardner. And so I think that that is one reason why we are seeing calls for defunding the police. Is some of this is a internal battle between um, different parts of the democratic base. One part being the sort of, um, uh, you know, foundation-funded, moderate um, wing uh, that might be supported by institutional actors like uh, the Obama, the, you know, the former Obama administration, uh, and uh, other sort of more radical organizations like the Movement for Black Lives, um, and they're more responsive to the social movements on the street. Um, and I could try to talk to you a little bit about why there's a reasoning for to defund the police as a slogan, as a um, political, uh, as, as a sort of, a there's some political momentum breaking up um, onto this issue. Um, but I think that it really does, it's based upon the fact that this is a systemic issue. Yes, um, we are, we, when we watch these videos, it's really easy to think, wow, maybe there was a reason for that, um, that killing. Maybe um, Mike Brown was, you know, charging at a police officer, or, you know, maybe this was a, a, a bad apple. Um, but the United States uh, kills over a thousand people a year uh, by police officers, and that's more than any uh, other developed country. Um, we also lead the world in the number of people uh, in prisons. Um, we have 2 million people in prisons, and that doesn't count the uh, further number of people that are in immigration detention camps, that are in military detention camps, that are also in municipal and county jails. Um, and so these are really, really big systemic issues of which there are 
institutional forces that are invested in the policing and incarceration of um, of people in of Americans of sometimes disproportionately people of color and black folks. Um, and maybe we could also talk about this issue about race because I think race is a is a driving is a is a driving frame in which a lot of people um, are forming their ideas about about the issue of police in the United States. You know, one of the first thoughts that I had when this story broke and that, that it became um, apparent that part of the story was that this officer had been on the force for a long time and they'd already had a bad record is it made me think about the movie Serpico back in the 1970s. He was a New York cop who always wanted to be a cop. He became, he went into the police department. He encountered all this corruption, people doing all kinds of stuff, both criminally, but also in terms of brutality. And that there was this sort of code of omerta, you know, this kind of, you don't talk about other officers. And that he discovered that this went all the way up to the top. And, uh, Eventually, he was shot, and then he left the country. I mean, it's a true story. And there were reforms afterwards as a reaction to it. Uh, and then I wonder if, you know, this is part of the... And, and I'm not trying to cast a, 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 just, you know, a big blanket here, but many of the police patrolmen's associations and police unions are, you know, they kind of take almost a Masonic oath of secrecy and there's this kind of like, I'm going to protect you if you protect me. And, and that's a situation that could become right for corruption, um, as it did in New York during Serpico's times. So I wonder if that's part of this. Now, you know, and you might want to comment on that. As far as like the, I mean, pol the incarceration rates in the United States, I think really started to skyrocket in the 90s with um, the Clinton era, you know, for, uh, third strike laws and and all of these other laws, the war on, on drugs by George Bush, and all these new laws were put in place, ended up putting untold thousands, hundreds of thousands of people in prison for minor crimes, you know, like having a nickel bag or having a joint or something like that. And um, President Trump has started the process of, of addressing it with the first, the first step legislation that ended up with the release of 10,000 prisoners, 90% of whom are black. And, uh, and I think there's going to be more reform in that way. But you're quite right that uh, it's become almost like an industrial complex of, of prisons. And you have the privatization like they had in California. And it came up during the, um, the uh, campaign of Kamala Harris, who had been a big advocate of that and uh, the state actually profiting from it. So, you know, there, there becomes an incentive to put people in prison because it becomes almost a business. So I think that we could look at the bigger questions here, you know, the more systemic questions of, um, of why so many people are incarcerated in this country and, and really should not be. I mean, I think that actually more conservative people are against that kind of incarceration. You know, you want to have only really dangerous, violent people, the people involved with serious crimes of fraud, like a Bernie Madoff, you know, are people who should be incarcerated. Not, not some poor schmo on the street who's selling a nickel bag of marijuana. 
Yeah, I mean, do, I, have a, I have a question for you. Do you happen to know what the, um, the I guess the, the, the most common form of theft in the United States is? The most common form of theft? Um, I don't know, probably pretty petty, but I don't know, what is it? It's wage theft. And it's, and it's never policed, never prosecuted. Um, and I think that that gets to this issue about, you know, talking about Madoff or, you know, um, you know, the Bernie Sanders campaign sort of used this rhetoric a lot that, you know, no one's been prosecuted who was responsible for the 2008 financial crisis. Um, and nevertheless, we're still putting people in jail for, for joints. And, um, and so I, 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 I do think that this becomes a, you know, a big, a big frame that, um, that is used. So I think that on the issue of Serpico, uh, Serpico actually wrote an article for Politico, uh, maybe 2015, um, sort of trying to talk about uh, his experience in the NYPD and how that might be useful for thinking about police reform efforts in the era of Black Lives Matter. Um, I think that corruption um, and thinking about the relationship of police to corruption is really, really important. Because if you were to think about how police operate in a place like, um, like, like Mexico, for example, um, you know, in uh, places where you might have less of a developed uh, police force, oftentimes uh, these, you know, these institutions act as protection rackets in which corruption is uh, the fundamental aspect of, of some of their job. And this goes back to history. So if you look sure. at before the creation of European municipal police departments in the 18th century, um, you know, you had a very long history of, of sort of kind of, you know, communi community-based sheriffs and police forces and tax, tax men who, who sort of formalized corruption. And it was a big aspect of how the state operated, but there's also these like autonomous, these autonomous forces out there that are using the authority given to them by the state to subsidize their own salaries. And um, so I think that this is really important. And as we think about police globally, I think we sort of see this um, schism still happening. And, and the example of Mexico and the United States is a really great um, example um, to bring that out. Now, in regards to unions and police, police organizations, there is indeed a culture that is trained in these organizations. And it's far different from the type of culture you see taught in European police departments or Japanese police departments. Um, and and that's, a big, that's a big problem. Um, and that's why um, there's also uh, police unions are being put under the spotlight by uh, reform advocates as um, in in need of maybe ab ab abolishing or at least minimizing their power because mm -hmm. um, they really do have a lot of power. They sort of protect killer cops. Um, they've kind of become sort of run by these sort of like far right, um, far right forces within police societies. Um, and this is this is all pretty complex. You know, police you know, or a very sort of masculine-based institution, one that has a sort of uh, a code of, of authority that is a big basis of, of how 
of how they train new recruits and of how they've operated historically and to the present. Um, but yes, I do think that there is a really great deal of possibility for, um, I wouldn't say bipartisanship on this issue, but there are conservative forces that are taking up the mantle of this. So, oh yeah, you know, no, absolutely. I think that from from my perspective, if you look at the Constitution, the the highest authority, policing authority, authority in the land is supposed to be the county sheriff, and uh, they are elected. You know, they are represented. They're a representative form, and that they are supposed to any kind of militia, private or public, you know, is supposed to be regulated by them. It's in the Second Amendment. We have a well guarantee of a well-regulated militia. And so you have a balance between civilian authority that's accountable to the people and a, a limited, very well-regulated grant of authority to a militia group, whether it be a, town, a city or town police department or a private militia group. And, and to my way of thinking, that's, that is a very good balance because as a conservative, I'm concerned about public employees and, and public and authority as, as playing too strong a role in our lives and of, of usurping individual rights. And what could be a bigger usurpation of individual rights than, than a, a cop who is a public official killing someone, you know, for um, unless they're armed and dangerous and unless you can have you know, there should be a review board to, to, to take a look at the situation. I mean, if, if, if a policeman's life is threatened and, you know, you have someone who's lashing out with, with weapons, then, you know, that may be the, the only solution that they have to them. It's easy for me to say, you know, it's, you know, this is a very dangerous job. But any situation like that ought to be put under review by local authorities uh, under a sheriff or whoever. To, to see what what was going on, but uh, what about you know is there uh, is this really is there really such systemic racism at this point? Because I think there certainly was right up until maybe the early seventies when it began to lessen. But I think it was quite common for police to harass black men, and it was race oriented. I mean, in a way, you know, you could kind of say, well, that's where the crime existed and that other ethnic minorities were harassed in their day when they had criminal problems. You know, you could look at the way Italians were treated in, in South Chicago in the 1920s, or even the Irish maybe in the 19th century, because they had crime. Eventually the crime problems lessened. They moved out to the burbs, you know, and, and so the, it, it didn't happen as much. Well, in the black neighborhoods, there was still a crime problem. So they're going after black men. Putting that aside, do you think that this is a systemic race problem as it's now being portrayed? Um, well, let me kind of finish the thought about um, conservative thinking, and then I'll, I'll try to answer the question about sure. race. So, um, you know, the, the United States was um, formed in largely based upon a philosophy of liber libertarian individualism. And whether it be the French Revolution or the American Revolution, there was a, a big feeling in the, the, 1800, in the 18th century and the 19th century about, um, about the arbitrary power of, of you know, monarchical forces, of the king, but also um, you know, their governors and colonial administrators. Um, and so that's why you could read the Bill of Rights, for example, 
as, as a document addressing police power. Now, if you were to sort of fast forward to the conservative iteration or the contemporary iteration of conservative thought on this issue, um, you know, you've seen conservative forces take up the mantle of criminal justice reform. The Koch brothers have put a lot of money into this. And, and some of this Koch brother money has ended up in democratic uh, organizations or left-leaning organizations like Campaign Zero. You know, that's mm -hmm. how the nonprofit industrial complex works. You know, all of this money is funded into think tanks. One of the big uh, conservative think tanks is Right on Crime. Um, and, and there's several others. And, you know, a lot of, uh, of these organizations, you know, are sort of proposing their own sort of police reform uh, policies. Um, I think I'm particularly impressed by um, Representative uh, Justin uh, Amash, is, is that his name? Amash? Yeah, from Michigan, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm particularly impressed by some of his statements um, recently on qualified immunity. He's been a big public advocate. And even among some of my conservative friends, um, you know, there is a, you know, a general belief that, um, that some of these issues are real and demand, demand immediate action. And I think that's a really great thing. Um, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm really happy to see that. I also, though, I'm kind of interested to know how uh, conservatives might uh, think about the, the campaign for defunding the police, pre precisely because of its relationship to a type of fiscal conservatism in which the issues about austerity, tightening our belts, not spending so much money are directly tied to the budget in which, you know, every single municipality or county here in the United States is spending most of its money on police um, or local prisons. And that's not money that's going to our, our hospitals, um, to our nurses fighting coronavirus who don't have the necessary equipment, to our schools, um, you know, to uh, social services, to transportation services. And um, I'm, I'm very interested to see what sort of, um, you know, cross-ideology cross relationships we can form on this issue. Well, now, yeah, interesting question. I think we already have in the sense that conservatives like President Trump and others support decriminalizing uh, things that had been put in place during the Clinton administration, the, uh, you know, the three strikes law and all the rest and putting people in prison, and that that as a byproduct is going to save huge amounts of money, uh, probably even including the police departments, but certainly in other areas of uh, justice and, and prisons. I mean, it's costing, uh, you know, how much money does each prisoner cost every year? It's a fortune. So, yeah, I mean, I mean that's something in California, that... In California, we pay, I think, $70,000, $80,000 a year for, uh, per inmate um, here in California. There you um, go. So, and the growth of mass incarceration um, here in the United States was a bipartisan, uh, a bipartisan movement by uh, Democrats and Republicans. Now, I, I would push Right, but back. it was done during the Clinton administration, and I think that the real vocal people against it were Republicans and conservatives. There was, and, and I suppose people on the far left. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that you could look at the, the rise of mass incarceration a lot of people have, you know, as a backlash to uh, the civil rights movement. And some of the biggest uh, crime bills actually were passed in 1968 by the LBJ administration. And when Richard Nixon ran for president, he ran as the quote unquote law and order 
candidate. Um, sure. And he launched a, a war on crime that was then continued by President Reagan with a war on drugs. Um, Actually, it was Bush Sr. That was the big war on drugs guy. But... I, um, they they both had a had a role in that, and I think that we're seeing some of some of those relationships play out with the Trump administration. Trump, the Donald Trump, uh, refers to himself as the law and order candidate, right? Um, and I, I'm sure you're familiar with the uh, Republican um, the Republican advisor Frank Luntz. Um, Frank Luntz just came out with an article saying that maybe we're witnessing the end of the conservative law and order coalition. Um, and I think these are important things to, to think about in our analysis. But maybe let's turn to the issue of race, if you don't mind. Not at all. I just want to, before we do, I just want to briefly comment on the law and order thing. And then we'll yeah, go to yeah, race. Yeah, let's, let's hear it. <laughs> what the heck, right? Um, I think that the question of law and order is really the, the main impetus of that are radicals, revolutionaries, criminals, and thugs who are burning black businesses primarily in predominantly black neighborhoods, uh, burning and looting black homes and businesses, killing black people. And that uh, it's a political thing. I mean, it's like the group Antifa and, the, and to a certain extent, uh, they're, they're uh, what do they call it? The uh, trans, um, you know how they all connect. I forget the word for that. Um, transsectional with other groups that are also radical. And, uh, and that this is what they mean by law and order. Not going after some guy with a nickel bag of marijuana. They're talking about going after people who are really trying to rip apart the social order in those communities and who are subversive politically. So, um, you know, to my way of thinking, that's the main focus for conservatives. And uh, I would hope that uh, good liberals would join in that because, after all, the main targets of that are minorities. The main people that are being killed and looted are black people. But let's let's use that as a, as a bridge to talk about race. Yeah, okay. Well, I can try to turn to race. I mean, I would, I would think that there's some really important undercurrents about race and the way that Trump frames his own approach of being a law and order president, of saying that, you know, mayors and governors need to quote unquote dominate. Um, and right. there Against are, anarchy. They, they are sort of, there's also, you know, at least amongst the left, you know, and I think that to take your point seriously, Charles, I do think that we are seeing a new rise of uprisings in the United States. Um, and, you know, so some people have been making allusions to the 1960s. Um, and, you know, we could have a conversation about, you know, the problematic aspects of quote unquote peaceful protests of, um, you know, the sort of, um, you know, uh, sort of more militant aspects of the, the left wing um, but there's also the rise of a militant right wing as well. Um, and, you know, we've seen a lot of incidents in which people have tried to plow their cars through protesters. Um, and there have been laws made by Republicans to, to make that legal. Um, and we're just seeing um, a lot of ways in which, you know, you know whether you disagree or disagree, you know, some people on the left think that Trump utilizes codes and signals to encourage this sort of um, volunteerism by, um, you know, sort of 
white, aggrieved, you know, sort of racist or semi-racist, um, you know, Republican voters. But well, I, I mean, I don't agree, and I think that the predominant there are obviously there's always, you know, a right-wing fringe out there. You know, the, I suppose the KKK. I mean, even though they used to be Democrat and they still are Democratic shock troops. Putting that aside, you know, th that's a fringe thing that's not really changed that much. They, they, they've always been there. They probably always will be there. But the main group of people that are doing the violence and the agitation is the sort of intersectional left groups that um, operate in a classic communistic style in that they don't have like a leader that marches out and makes announcements. It's sort of like they all think alike and they know how to operate anonymously autonomously I remember I'll give the it's kind of a personal anecdote but I remember asking my late communist uncle back in the, I mean, I'm a lot older than you but this is way back in the day I was like how does this work I mean do you take your orders from the Kremlin I mean who who sends you know the marching orders and his answer was we don't get anything like that because we don't need it we all think alike we all know what to do we are all stimulated by the same you know what's going on we just you know it's part of a consciousness and i think that that's sort of what's what's happening it is you know predominantly a left thing and then i think that when president trump talks about law and order and by asking the cities to make sure that they don't allow anarchy to develop in their cities by dominating the government which is i think needed because again they're looting and burning black businesses and destroy just like in the 1960s they predominantly looted and burned down black neighborhoods. I mean, there were some cities, and I'm older than you, I remember it, that never recovered. You know, Detroit, Newark, neighborhoods of Chicago, completely burned, uh, lives destroyed, businesses wiped out, you know, and, and it took the black community almost a generation to recover from that. I think that we don't want to see that happening again. You know, they, they are the primary targets of this, ironically, I suppose, but maybe that's where you get fodder for a revolution. I don't know. I mean, now I'm not here to condemn and say that most liberals agree with this. I don't think they do at all. Uh, although I think there's a tendency amongst more liberal oriented uh, pundits and media figures to give it a pass. Uh, but, but that's what I think is being discussed here. And I reject this idea that, um, President Trump is sending out some kind of racist, uh, you know, dog whistles. I, I just think that's that's tin hat conspiracy theory stuff. Yeah, I mean, you know, pretty much every data point or um, both within the government and out of the government says that th there's been a massive rise in white supremacist uh, organizations of literature going out into the public of even uh, sentiments within um, the voter base. Um, the number of murders um, and killings uh, by white supremacist organizations um, has skyrocketed uh, these past couple years. Um, and we could use data to, to sort of talk about these points, okay. but I do think that maybe you bring up some interesting points about, about this sort of generational issue within the black community. Um, because I do think that some of the older uh, black Democratic voters um, do did have a sort of um, m kind of more moderate um, memory of the 1960s um, and supported um, efforts by the Clinton administration for the crime bill for welfare reform. 
And you even saw this play out in the, um, the current sort of democratic divide between the Bernie Sanders wing of the party and the, you know, the Joe Biden wing of the party, who was one of, who was the author of the 1994 crime control bill. Um, and some of this is the biggest divide within the democratic base right now is a sure. generational divide uh, between older and younger uh, Democrats. Now let's get to this idea of race, because I think that you know, and I, I, I can hear in your own comments and I see it on the news. Um, I see it on my social media uh, page, pages and, and comments by friends and, you know, my community that the issue of race is really the flashpoint in which people become super frustrated and animated and maybe con super contentious with each other about these issues. And Black Lives Matter movement has taken the issue of police and uh, police killings and mass incarceration and framed it entirely in terms of racial politics. And in one respect, it's very, it, it's an important frame to, to think about, not just in trying to look at the history of race relations in the United States, but also because there are a disproportionate number of, of, of blacks who are killed by police and who are inside prisons. But there is also some people who are at least critical uh, and there is a schism within, within, the, within black intellectuals on this issue. Um, Aldolf Reed, for example, wrote an article trying to argue about how police killings um, are not determinative based upon race, but actually, if you take class into consideration, um, you, you would find that because um, the black population doesn't have the accumulated assets as the white community, um, that there is a way to say that um, the targeting of black people is actually maybe a targeting of poor people. Um, and I would remind, um, you know, that, that the, that the most disproportionate number of people killed by police forces are Native Americans, the indigenous community. The largest number of people killed um, by police are white men. Um, and, um, you know, over 600 uh, last year. Um, and there is a massive population of, of white people inside prisons as well. Um, right, and so right. these are um, really contentious, really contentious issues. And it makes it, um, it, it, it makes people's emotions come, come into, come into uh, the fold and it kind of creates this political, this political polarized dynamic. And I, I really wish we could try to find a way to get past some of this. However, I, I try to listen to um, the black community, uh, black activists, and you know, their use of data um, is, is very convincing. Um, and, the ways in which money that um, is being funneled to uh, police and prisons as a political fix to social ills involving poverty, um, you know, are, there is a, a strong argument to be made that we have um, systematically impoverished uh, certain parts of the American population while enriching uh, other parts of the American population, um, both you know 
long-term historically, but also in, in the near term as well. Um, and so that's why a lot of, at least the issue of divestment and reinvestment of defunding the police is becoming a focal frame in which to, uh, to think about what might be reform efforts that we could look forward to. And the movement to defund the police comes out of a really rich tradition um, associated with abolitionist thinkers um, and supported by activists on the ground. Um, you know, that's why we've seen, you know, the call by Minneapolis City, City Council to quote unquote disband uh, the Minneapolis Police Department to replace it with community-based public safety and then references to the Camden model, Camden, New Jersey, as a possible solution. Um, and I think that um, we should actually realize that already with, with that recent decision, we're seeing the language of defunding the police be sort of translated into a new technologically friendly version of policing. The Camden model, for example, relied upon a massive increase in surveillance technologies. Um, there well, that has its own troubling element to it. And uh, just, you, you know, you, you got, you, you touched on a lot of really interesting points here. Um, as far as the surge in white supremacy, the Southern Poverty Law Center keeps stats on that. And they pointed out that there did begin to be an, an uptick, not a surge. I mean, I would hardly say that it's shooting for the roof, but it did show a little bit of an uptick, starting with the Trayvon Martin incident in uh, 2012. And then it started to build a little bit more during Ferguson. And uh, it's kind of, it, it, it's sort of there w where it is. It's kind of at a plateau. It's not, it's not a major thing. It's, uh, you know, they're always out there in the fringes, the, the, those types. You know, if you lift up enough rocks, <laughs> you're going to find them. Uh, Are you uh, familiar with the, uh, the Amy Cooper video? No. So Amy Cooper, right before the, the incident involving George Floyd, Amy Cooper uh, was uh, walking in, in New York City, Central Park. Oh, yes, um, of course. And, and then this, and, she was like, oh, my God, there's a black man. I, yeah, I, I saw Yeah, that. and gotten and, and, oh, and, and, and called, you know, called the police on him. And, and Amy Cooper was a liberal. Um, and, right. you know, there's um, there's a lot of. Amy Cooper's within liberal democratic circles. Yeah, but I would hardly um, call her a white supremacist. I mean, she just was a woman out fearful. I mean, obviously someone who's, you know, I mean, I've seen that happen. I mean, people, you know, all of a sudden they, they become gripped with fear. And yeah, well, it definitely had a race element to it for sure. Well, I think that that's why maybe we can, um, you know, make pretty clear distinctions between the white supremacists that we might be seeing in uh, places like Charlottesville um, right. and the people who have, you know, implicit bias. I mean, implicit bias is a real thing. I have implicit bias. I, you know, have, have you know, really uh, struggled uh, with, you know, anti-blackness within within myself and trying to interrogate uh, some of those uh, white privilege privileges that I have. The, which is actually not just a, an individual thing. It's a structure. Um, there is a a uh, an institutional arrangement in which certain voices and certain faces are always centered and they're centered in our media they're centered um you know in uh our politics um and you know i think that the the amy cooper 
the Amy Cooper uh, complex is a complex that's a, a bipartisan issue. Um, and, you know, I think that we have a lot to do to deconstruct oh, the issue of whiteness within, within our society. You know, you talked about the Irish. Um, you know, like I said, I'm a historian by trade. And, you know, one of the ways in which people have talked about whiteness is in particularly issues like, you know, the Irish or Catholics who actually weren't considered white, you know, in the 19th That's century, right. mm -hmm. is a lot of times that they actually sort of earned their whiteness by, you know, becoming police officers. And, um, you know, you see this relationship with certain institutions like police um, that sort of embed um, you know, sort of subterranean um, racial relations in a way that might not be immediately obvious. And I think that it's really uh, important that we try to uncover the veil of institutional racism that might not um, look like what we remember racism to be in the 1960s. So I'm very influenced by a, a, a book called uh, Racism Without Racists. And, you know, I think that a lot of your conservative listeners, um, you know, might find a lot to, to learn in that because, you know, trying to think about issues of racism without always um, thinking in this sort of really polarizing way about, about being a racist um, is an important way that, we can do a lot of self-reckoning um, individually and collectively um, about, um, you know, race relations um, in this country. And I guess I study these issues about whiteness as well. Right. And it's a big part of how I, um, you know, am, am writing some of my dissertation. I probably will write some things that um, members of my uh, academic community will probably disagree with pretty vehemently. Um, but uh, nevertheless, I think that, you know, there is, there is a history to all of this. Oh, yeah. And I mean, as, it sounds as, to me like the book you're talking about is very interesting. I, maybe I should interview the author. Maybe you and I should come on together and interview the author. We could do like a, we could launch on this program a national discussion on race and bring in people. No, this is something I'm trying to think about right now. Um, as far as like, you know, what you're saying, like implicit racism, I mean, I, I totally get that. My grandparents' generation, they went out of their way to try to be white and to try to pass as white and did so. And uh, my brothers to this day, if I asked them about their ethnic background, they're white. I mean, they wouldn't, the idea of not thinking of themselves as such would be completely alien to them. So, and yet I also appreciate the fact that a black person has a, it's a lot harder to do that because of their physical traits. You can see that they're black. It's like they can't just pass as white. I mean, you know, so, you know, there is this burden and I can't put myself in their shoes. I understand that. Um, what I can do is look at policies that I think have hurt race relations and uh, have fanned the flames of race conflict in this country. Um, it's a big subject. We probably don't have time to get into it right now. I am very condemning of what I view as leftist policies starting in the 1960s that hurt the black family, hurt the black church, hurt black education, hurt black business. And I think that had those policies been done a little differently, maybe even a little bit more conservatively, you'd see black people today much more, and they are anyways, 
thank goodness, but they would be much more part of the middle class. They would be much more integrated, much more, you know, you wouldn't have this kind of crime problem and, and drug problem and murder problem that we now have, which I think is a legacy of those, those programs. But anyway, we're kind of reaching toward the end, Andy, and I want you to have the last word. So um, talk a little bit about your thinking now and about your work and, you know, give my listeners and audience any websites you'd want to share. Uh, are, you, are you the author of a book or, or anything like that? I mean, I'm, I'm just trying to finish my dissertation. Um, I'm trying to hopefully get a, get a job um, one day. Um, I mean, we're, you know, the, we're sort of looking at the oncoming uh, austerity um, and maybe a, an oncoming depression um, because of the coronavirus. Yeah. And, and so it's, it's pretty, pretty scary time out there, you know, um, particularly within higher education, there's a sort of systematic issue within, within higher education and, um, you know, uh, being able to get, you know, jobs as teachers. We need more teachers out in the world. Um, right. and, um, and, and so, you know, I'm just going to be trying to finish my dissertation. Um, and um, I guess we, we originally came here to uh, address, address my fascism essay, but we uh, never... You, you know, we'll have, to, we'll have to do another show on that because that's such a, a rich subject. You know, that's... Um, I mean, I've written a few books on that topic and that's something, yes, you're right. That was what we, you know, then you, you toss, you know, we, we, we have a topical issue. So that's always first when you do, uh, when you do uh, broadcasting, but um, I should have you back for that. I'd like to uh, really, you know, delve into that. We don't have time right now today. Sure. Well, but, uh, I guess um, maybe as, as a form of conclusion, um, you know, I, 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 I always really love, you know, people to read my work and to reach out to me. I really think it's important to try to write in a way that's not just for academics, but that tries to communicate with the public. Um, and that includes um, people, uh, you know, who identify themselves as conservatives. Um, you know, I think that, you know, people have a sort of, they have really complex political theologies, everyone. Um, you know, people sure. in suburbs, um, you know, people in conservative circles, people in liberal circles, people in radical circles. And, you know, I, I really believe that, you know, people have really complex politics. And a lot of these issues about policing really get to some of our, the myths that we believe about, about politics. And, and, you know, I think it's really important to try to communicate to everyday folks and kind of try to listen to them and connect with their common sense understanding. And I hope that, um, you know, your, whether it be your conservative listeners, you know, would, um, <clears throat> would take seriously um, the call to defund the police. Um, I think that, you know, we have an out of control police state in this country. We have um, a massive um, prison industrial complex. We um, have, a budget that in which almost all of the money that our tax dollars fund is to, you know, tanks and weapons and tear gas and SWAT departments. And I think that there is a lot of communication that we can do to find common ground 
on these issues. Oh, I and agree. I know that there is a lot of political intensity about, about these issues and people sort of get into their boxes. And I think that it is really important to break down those boxes and communicate with people because I feel once you actually start listening to people, um, you actually find out that pretty much everyone's really smart and that you might have fundamental disagreements. But if you're willing to, um, to listen, um, you can actually find a lot um, of agreement. And, um, you know, the defund the police um, is sort of a public policy friendly version of, of what radicals and abolitionists have been calling for. But the reason why it's a public policy friendly approach is because it gets to the central issue in that we put our money um, predominantly into these institutions of authority and violence, and we're not putting them back into our communities. Um, and these are, these are your dollars. They're my dollars. They're, you know, your listeners' dollars. And, yeah. um, you know, I think that we need to make sure that our institutions locally, um, as well as nationally, are more accountable to us. And, you know, but fights over budgets are never... They're never sexy. No one really likes to talk about the budget, but mm -hmm. the budget is where politics is made. Um, and, you know, trying to dive into the political power of police departments and the way, the power that they hold over mayors, over city councils, over counties, over, um, you know, uh, state legislatures is massive. And it's understudied um, here within political science, and it's under-talked about. Um, and, you know, um, I know that you have strong thoughts about the uprisings that are happening, but, um, you know, I think that if you oppress a community long enough, um, you have to expect that they are going to respond in anger and frustration. Um, and we have to do a better job of listening to those communities, of knowing that, you know, they've had generation after generation of black men who end up in prison um, and who can't take care of their families um, and who are being killed by police and that are also involved in these sort of economic, economic conditions of poverty, of forms of urban segregation that still exist with redlining, of bad access to, edu to education, bad, bad healthcare facilities. Um, and, you know, we can confront these issues and we can do a lot better job of trying to, to solve them. Um, and I, I really appreciate you having me on. I My really pleasure. appreciate anyone that might have been uh, listening that might uh, not share my politics, but maybe was willing to, uh, you know, be empathetic to some of the ideas that I was trying to express. And um, I hope that, um, you know, maybe we can establish uh, a relationship that uh, goes on after this. Very good. All right, Andrew Johnson. Listen, I want to thank you for joining me this afternoon. It's been very interesting. Thank you very yeah. much. Thank you as well. All right. Talk to you soon. Thank you.